0: Welcome back to The Wrestling Room. We are embarking on a journey through the book of Acts, and I'm actually going to dive into the book today. We're going to do an overview, but I want to read the first three verses to set the stage for our study today. So grab your Bible if you have it, and we're going to launch. I'm going to pray, and then into the book of Acts we go. So buckle up, friends. Buckle up. It's going to be a good ride. Lord, we give you this ride, this journey, this study, and we praise you in advance for what you're going to do. Open our eyes, open our hearts, expand our vision, help us to trust you more, to love you more, to believe in your greatness and your genius, O oh Lord, in a way we never have because of this time in your word, this journey through this great book of Acts. We pray it in your powerful name. Amen. Amen. So grab your Bible. I'm going to read the first three verses, and then we're going to do an overview, an introduction to this book. This is Dr. Luke writing to Theophilus, and I'll explain those both in just a second. He writes this, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Wow, good stuff. My wife and I are have become uh, quite intrigued by and fans of Elon Musk and Tesla, like many of you probably. And we have watched the ups and downs and the the crazy turns and the roller coaster ride of this company and this man, uh, they're equally as intriguing. And this past week, I listened to a video on YouTube entitled Elon Musk's Most Shocking Predictions of 2021. How do you say no to a video like that, right? So uh, I watched this, and at the end, the commentator, Roger James Hamilton, the founder and CEO of Genius Group, made this statement that just intrigued me. He said this, if you're an investor and you want to invest your money to be both both fast growth and lower risk, don't focus on the business as much as on the person. Today, all my stock picks aren't based on companies, but on the entrepreneurs running them. I invested in Tesla because I believed Elon was someone worth betting on. Wow, that's an interesting, interesting statement. And as I heard that, and I was studying the book of Acts, I thought, the book of Acts is a story of what happened when 120 people bet the farm, went all in, all their money down on one person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That is the book of Acts. And from a historical standpoint, it's captivating. From an organizational standpoint, it's absolutely fascinating. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you bear the name as Christ follower, follower of Jesus, this is your story. This is my story, brothers and sisters. This is our story. You and I are characters in this story. We are living in the latter part of this incredible drama, whether we realize it or not. As an American, we study the pilgrims. We study the Nina, Pinta, Santa Maria, Plymouth, uh, Jamestown. But as a believer in Jesus, we look to Jerusalem. We look to the book of Acts as our ultimate history manual. These are our people. This is our heritage. This is our history. We, these are our roots, (laughs) So today, I want to look at the book of Acts from the viewpoint that they had as they made this investment in Jesus, as they went all in with Jesus. Did they make a good choice? So I want to start by looking at the author, the author, Dr. Luke. Here's a couple facts about him. He was a Gentile, from my understanding, the only Gentile, non-Jew author in the Bible. But he was a physician as well. Colossians 4.14, Paul addresses him as Luke, the beloved physician. So he's a doctor, he's a physician. It's likely that he came to faith in Jesus through Paul's ministry and then traveled with Paul extensively, likely as Paul's physician because Paul had so many health problems. But Luke was also a scientist. When you look at the book of Acts, he approaches right from the very beginning with a scientific mind, referring to these irrefutable facts, presenting those immediately, right out front. He was also a scholar. Uh, Bible interpreters and Bible translators will tell us that his Greek was the best of all New Testament writers, which stands to reason if he wasn't a Jew and likely was Greek, he's dealing with his own native language. But he was by far the best Greek scholar of any of the New Testament writers. Finally, he was a historian. He was a historian, and the book of Acts is a book of history. It is our history. So the question is, was he a reliable historian? Was he an accurate historian? To answer that question, I want to look at a short story about Sir William Ramsey, who was a brilliant scholar from Cambridge back in the early 20th century. It was said of him that he was the foremost authority in his day on the topography, the antiquities, and the history of Asia Minor, largely where Paul ministered. He was also considered to be one of the world's greatest experts in the study of the New Testament, especially the book of Acts and the letter of Paul. Now here's the twist. He was also an agnostic. He was not a believer. In fact, very much not a believer. He was opposed to scripture, opposed to Christianity, and wanted to disprove the accuracy of the Bible. So he knew that Dr. Luke had recorded the missionary journeys of Paul in the book of Acts. So here's what he did. He went on a trip with the mission to discredit Dr. Luke as a historian. He traveled to Asia Minor. His goal was to declare the whole story of the book of Acts and by virtue of that, the whole of the Bible as nonsense, to debunk the whole thing. And he carefully followed the journeys of Paul, painstakingly retracing Paul's steps, creating a thorough study. And when it was finished, here were his three conclusions. This brilliant, revered, agnostic scholar came to these three conclusions. Number one, that Dr. Luke had not made a single historical inaccuracy. No mistakes. None. That was unheard of. Second conclusion... That Dr. Luke was one of the greatest historians the world had ever known, ancient or modern times. That was another conclusion that he came to. The third conclusion that he came to is this. That the person of Jesus and the church of Jesus was so compelling that he had to give his life to Jesus. And in this process, Sir William Ramsey became a follower of Jesus and an avid promoter and uh, Apologist for the Christian faith, <laughs> fantastic story. So the author is Dr. Luke, and the first, second, uh, First Corinthians one twenty six says this. This is an amazing scripture where Jesus is speaking through Paul, and he says this. For consider your calling, brothers. There aren't many of you wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble. In other words, the church is kind of a bunch of ragamuffins. <laughs> uh, we're a bunch of ragamuffins. It says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Not in the case of Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke was an exception to this passage. Dr. Luke was one of the wise. He was one of the mighty. He was one of the noble. And God used him powerfully to put together this historical record of the expansion expansion of the church, the growth of the church of Jesus. So that's the author. Now, Let's talk about the audience. Who was this book written to? This is fascinating. It was written to a man named Theophilus, and in the book of Luke, he's addressed as most excellent Theophilus, which is a title for a high-ranking Roman official. But in the book of Luke, he's just addressed as Theophilus or O Theophilus. Now, here's the theory amongst some Bible scholars, and we don't know for sure, but it's possible that as he read through volume number one, the book of Luke, the person of Jesus was so compelling that this high-ranking Roman official gave his heart to this Jewish carpenter named Jesus of Nazareth. And that when Luke writes the second volume, the book of Acts, he's addressing Theophilus as not a high-ranking Roman official, but a brother in the Lord. What a story. Can't wait to see Theophilus when we get to heaven and ask him to clarify that for us. But this is written to a leader. Now, what's important about that? What was going on in the church was of utmost importance to leadership everywhere. All the leaders were reading the papers and checking their emails. What's going on with the church today? <laughs> like checking the stock market. The church was exploding. It was sweeping the known world and it was affecting everything. Listen to this from uh, Acts chapter 17. Paul and Silas, who we'll uh, uh, get to know, become a um, familiar with, they come to Thessalonica and they're proclaiming Jesus as king. And their their opponents who are threatened by this, here's what they say. They say, these men who have turned the world upside down, or another version says, who have upset the world, have come here also saying that there is another king, Jesus. <laughs> and that, is the, that is the picture, that is the image that people had of the believers, those who have turned the world upside down those who have upset the world and the events that we're getting ready to study changed the known world you guys this is not trivia that we're going to study What we're going to study literally changed the known world changed it the events that we're going to read about shook the political world the social world the military world the religious world the business world, every aspect of life was dramatically touched by the, the the growth of this new body of people called Christians, the church. It impacted men and women at every level of society, of society. So here's what I want you to understand, and that is this. Christianity, the message of Jesus, is disruptive. It's disruptive. It's not anemic. It's not passive. It's not ambivalent. Jesus himself had declared, I have not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. That's a strong statement. It's a shocking statement. Everywhere the message of Jesus went, people would be moved. People would be disturbed. People would be impassioned. People would be upset. The families would be divided, as Jesus predicted. Separated, neighbors would be separated People would be put at odds with one another. This message was not, it was disruptive. It wasn't passive or apathetic, it was disruptive. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians that we are going to be to some people the aroma of death. We're going to be some people the aroma of life. And then he says, who is qualified or who is adequate for these things? In other words, that's heavy. The message that we carry to some, they're going to hate it. To others, they're going to love it. It's going to be life to them, death to others. That's the church. That's the church of Jesus. So let's look at the outline. What is the book of Acts composed of? You can look at it in two different ways. The growth of the church or the leaders of the church. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 has a natural outline built within it where Jesus said, you're going to be witnesses unto me. In Jerusalem first, that's chapters 1 through 7, In Judea and Samaria, that's 8 through 12. And then to the uttermost parts of the earth, that's 13 through 28. So you can look at the book of Acts based on concentric circles. Jerusalem, it would be established in Jerusalem. Then in chapter 8, verse 1, there would be heat in the kitchen, persecution. And it would expand to Judea and Samaria. So wherever there's heat, there's expansion. There was persecution. There was heat, the church expanded. And then in chapter 13, it extends like a rubber band being shot out to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's the first way that we can look at the book of Acts. Second is very simple. We have Peter, the entrepreneurial leader of the church, in chapters 1 through 12. Then we have Paul, the pioneering leader of the church, 13 through 28, two major leaders. Kind of like the growth of McDonald's. The McDonald brothers came in. They established a powerful restaurant, a new system of doing things. It was more local. Ray Kroc came, and boom, it went all over the world. So that's really a simple analogy to the growth of the church. Peter, 1-12. through Paul, 13-18, through taking to the uttermost parts. Time frame. This Book of Acts is about thirty years. It encompasses about thirty years. The Book of Luke is about thirty-three years. The life of Jesus. So in total, these two volumes by Doctor Luke, Luke and Acts, sixty-three years. Now I want to talk about the title. The Book of Acts. That's pretty mild, pretty bland, and I don't think it's accurate. Here is what the title of the Book of Acts should be. It should be simply this: the actions of the risen and living Lord Jesus through common people like you and me by the power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's the book of Acts and that is the the title that we uh, that I'm going to give to this book. The actions of the risen and living Lord Jesus Christ through common people like you and me by the power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> when you look at the at the, the leaders and the the, the people who formed the new church just before the church was, was formed, they were anything but world changers. They were fearful and anxious and unbelieving and fickle and shifting. They were not a world-changing bunch, but something happened that lit them on fire. We're going to talk about that next week. But that is the title of this great book, The Actions of the Risen and Living Lord Jesus, Through Common People Like You and Me, By the Power of the Holy Spirit. That is the Christian life, by the way, brothers and sisters. That is the Christian life, precisely. So, let's talk then about the theme or the summary of the book of Acts. And for that, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. The overarching summary or common theme of the whole book is declared by Jesus in Matthew 16, 18. And here's what he says. He's having a conversation with Peter, and he says this, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is the theme or the summary of the book of Acts. I will build my church upon this bedrock, not upon you, Peter, (laughs) You're a stone in the building. You're a starting point for the building. You're the first convert of the new church, which he was. He was the first one by the power of the Holy Spirit and the revelation of the Father to understand who Jesus really was. Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they gave him some wonderful answers that honored him incredibly. But they were answers that flowed out of the intellect. They were logical answers. Then he turned to them and he said, who do you say that I am? That is the question of the ages. That is the, the one question on the final exam of life. Who do you say that Jesus is? And that answer cannot come to you through your intellect. It only comes by divine revelation, by God's supernaturally unblinding, opening blind eyes so that you see Jesus in all his glory, all his grandeur, all his power as the creator of the universe, the one who always was, is, and is to come, you see him as Christ, the son of the living God, God in the flesh. And Jesus said to Peter, flesh and blood hasn't shown this to you, but my father which is in heaven, you are Peter, you are the stone, you're the first convert to the new church, and you'll be the first leader of the new church. But upon this rock, bedrock. (laughs) I'll get to that in a second. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, let's dissect this. What is Jesus declaring about the church? Number one, that he is the owner of the church. Jesus is the owner of the church. He says, my church. This is a possessive pronoun. Now, how could he say this about the church? That it was his church on a very legal basis in Acts chapter 20, Paul is talking to the leadership of this new baby church who are their babies themselves that are mentoring other babies in this brand new baby church. And he says to them, therefore, take heed to yourselves. Make sure that you are standing firm and to all the flock so you can take care of those other babies who are growing in Jesus. Which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. God's Holy Spirit has raised you up to lead this new fledgling baby church. Then he says, to shepherd the church of God, which he, Jesus, purchased with his own blood. You guys, when Jesus hung on the cross, he gave his lifeblood as a purchase price for the church. He owns the church based on his precious, perfect, pure blood. Jesus owns the church. It is truly his church. I love watching Shark Tank, all these entrepreneurs coming in to uh, stand before five billionaires and ask them for money, give them a pitch, show them the new product, all of that. But inevitably, they're going to be asked a question. How much of your own capital have you invested in this venture? A lot of different answers. Some very little, some a lot. if Jesus were asked that question, his answer would be, I gave everything. I gave everything. Total commitment. You guys, total commitment is what Jesus gives to his church. He owns it. He bought it with his blood. He emptied himself for the church. He gave it all. Understand this. There's no plan for Plan B for Jesus. The church is plan A and there's only plan A. It's all or nothing for Jesus and the church. The church is the return on the investment of his life's blood. Total commitment. Wow. So Jesus is the owner of the church. He's made a total commitment to it through his blood. But he's also the builder of the church. He said, I will build my church. And in Psalm 127.1, we have a principle that Jesus is harking, hearkening back to. He says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. God has to be the builder of our marriages, of our families, of our children, of our businesses. If God is not the builder, we labor in vain. And he knew that about his church and he said, I will build my church. (laughs) I will build my church. This is not an investment that he made and then walked away to let somebody else manage. He is hands-on with his church. He is building the church. Total engagement. Not just total commitment, total engagement. Jesus is the senior pastor of the church according to 1 Peter 5.4. Jesus isn't just an advisor or a contractor. He is up to his armpits in the mess and the muck and the mire of the church. <laughs> and it's messy, guys. Pastoring a church is messy. Jesus is the senior pastor of the church worldwide. Some people wondering, "What is Jesus doing up there in heaven? Is he just sitting on a throne? Are you kidding?" He's the senior pastor of the whole church worldwide. <laughs> Only God could do that. But also he's interceding for us. Romans 8.34 says Jesus is constantly praying for his church. Day and night, he says he ever lives, always interceding for you and me. He's praying for us. But he's also working on us. Philippians 2.13 says it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God is working in you. He's working on you. So he's leading the, the, the universal church. He's praying night and day, and he's working in and on you. And then Philippians 1.6, says, He who began a good work will complete it. So Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He doesn't start something and then let it sit. He finishes his project. He's working in us, on us, and he's going to complete the work. He's totally invested in his church, totally engaged with his church. But thirdly, he is the foundation of the church. He said, on this rock, I will build the church. On this rock, who is he referring to? We don't have the time for it today, but all throughout the Old Testament, there is a string of symbolism that all refer to Jesus as a rock. A rock out of which water flowed with Moses and the children of Israel. A rock that smashed the feet of the statue in Daniel chapter 2 and became a mountain that filled the whole earth, a kingdom that would be everlasting and eternal, led by a king or reigned over by a king who is everlasting and eternal. Any guess who that is? So when the scripture talks about Jesus being the rock, that is the word petra. It means bedrock, it means foundation. And the scripture also refers to Jesus as the cornerstone. That is the part of the building that holds everything together. Everything together. You take out the cornerstone and everything crumbles. Jesus is the bedrock. He's the cornerstone. He's the one that holds everything together. What does that say to you and me? He has taken 100% full responsibility for the church. You can trust Jesus. You can trust Jesus. This week, um, many of us are mourning after the reports about Ravi Zacharias have come out. They're, they're heinous. When I first began to look into this, I was just stone cold. I just, it just stunned me and numbed me. This man that I revered, I have his books, I've watched his YouTube videos, I've learned so much from him, and yet his personal life was so different than his public life. I understand some of this, so I don't throw stones at him. But it was numbing to me. But as I, as I listened to the different comments and read the different comments, there's one that emerged far more than any other, and that is this. We cannot put our trust in men. We cannot, if you, if a person has flesh on and has is not named Jesus, you can't put your trust in them. You can't rest your life on their stone. They're just stone. They're just flesh. They're not bedrock. Jesus is bedrock. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the one that holds it all together. If you put your faith in a person, you will be disappointed. The scripture says those who put our, their faith in Jesus will never be ashamed Those who have worked for Ravi, those who, no doubt, who are married to his wife and his children, they've got to be in mourning. They put their faith in him, and they've been put to shame. Those who trust in Jesus, the scripture says, will never be put to shame. Never. Never. He's taken total responsibility for the church. Total commitment, total engagement, total responsibility. But finally, let's talk about the resilience of the church. Because he says the gates of hell will not overcome it. A gate is the place in a walled city. And that's what it is. It's the main entrance into a walled city or a prison that is the most vulnerable place. Those gates have to be strong to secure the city. And when an enemy force comes, he always comes for the gate because it's the most vulnerable place. He says, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What does Hades refer to? In Greek mythology, Hades was the elder brother of Poseidon and Zeus. And by a cast of lots, he was given the responsibility or designated the god of the lower region, the realm of death, the receptacle of the disembodied spirits. And so... Hades was the one who reigned, in Greek mythology, in the domain of the dead with his three-headed dog Cerberus and guarded the entrance of the underworld. He was often depicted carrying a scepter and, believe it or not, holding a key to his kingdom, which was called the Key of Hades. Keep that in mind. But he had instituted, Hades had a no-checkout policy strictly forbidding his subjects to leave his domain and would become enraged if anyone tried to escape or someone tried to steal souls from his realm. (laughs) And so as such, the gates of hell or the gates of Hades mean the power and the authority and the rage of Hades. What is Jesus saying? What is Jesus saying? He's saying this. I will build my church. And it will grow and thrive in spite of all these opposing powers. It will never fail. It will thrive from generation to generation. This movement will plunder hell and populate heaven and nothing can stop it. Not Satan, not death, not Hades. Jesus is saying, I will overcome every enemy and destroy every adversary. That is what Jesus is declaring. Total victory. And at the cross, Satan threw everything he had at Jesus, and Jesus conquered sin. In the grave, Hades threw everything he had at Jesus, and Jesus just laughed at his no-checkout policy and walked out of the grave, conquering death. Brothers and sisters, be clear. Let's be very clear. As we enter this book of Acts, what we're studying There is no force, no power, no trend, no down market, no opposition that can stand against the church of Jesus. None. It has taken the hardest blows. It has absorbed the most brutal attacks. It has been maligned, mistreated, persecuted, propagandized, opposed, resisted, slandered, insulted, and on and on we could go. And yet it continues. We continue to march forward in the mighty name of Jesus, our bedrock, our leader, our founder, our owner, and our defender. The Church of Jesus is the only organization, the only movement, the only investment opportunity where you have 100% guarantee of success. <laughs> There's no risk in putting your faith in Jesus and in his church. Total victory. So I want to end with this one question and three conclusions. The question is this. Is what you are investing your life in worth Jesus dying for? Is what you are investing your life in, your finances, your time... All that you are and have, is it worth Jesus dying for? How are you investing your life? I remember vividly reading the biography of Oswald J. Smith. And as a young pastor, he would cry out to God, Oh God, don't let me waste my life. Over and over, that was a mantra of his. Oh God, don't let me waste my life. And I've prayed that prayer myself many times. Oh God, don't let me waste my life. So I'm going to ask you three things. I'm going to give you three suggestions, three conclusions. Number one, the best investment you can make with your life, the smartest, is to put your full trust in Jesus. Full commitment to the Lord Jesus. No holds barred, no reservations, no hesitations. Go all in on Jesus. You can bet on him. You can bet everything. You can trust him. But number two, and that is the best use of your time and talent is to create something or be part of something that is promoting the message of Jesus. My wife and I have a mission statement that all of our decision-making flows through. It is out of Isaiah 66 verse 19, and and the mission statement is simply this. Declaring Jesus fame and revealing Jesus glory. That is the filter, the mission of our lives. We filter all decisions through that. The best use of your time and talent is to create something or be part of something that is promoting the message of Jesus. And then number three, the best use of your finances is to invest in people. Invest in organizations who are working to get the message of Jesus throughout the world. This is the highest return on your investment. People, is what you are investing your life in worth Jesus dying for? That is a powerful question. I pray that you be able to say, absolutely, yes. We have bet the farm on Jesus. <laughs> We've put all our chips in the middle of the table. He is everything to us. He's coming. He's coming. Let me pray for you. Jesus, Thank you for your word. Thank you for this powerful reminder that upon this rock you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We love you, Lord. We love you and we place our trust 100% in you. Use us this week to be a blessing, to be light and salt to a world that needs you desperately. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys this week. May God use you. May you shine like lights in this dark world. Have a blessed week. We'll see you next week. See ya.